in this corner with the Brian Campbell. This is the professional wrestling edition. Now me, I am handsome Nick Costos, and I want to go ahead and thank each and every one of you, the listeners. Well, not each and every one of you, but the ones that have gone out of your way to follow me on Instagram at the Costos to slide into my DMs and tell me how much you like me on In This Corner. It really means a lot to me. And since I am a petty, pathetic, insecure little man, that validation, it helps me sleep better at night. At the Costos on Instagram, that's T-H-E-K-O-S-T-O-S. And might I add, I am looking mighty handsome today as I stare at myself on the old Skype camera. And as always, I am joined by my tag team partners. First, he is the man with the plan. He's the man that makes it all happen. Roman Reigns doesn't happen without this guy. Charlotte Flair on today's show does not happen with this guy. He is the bearded. He is the handsome. He is the man. He is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. Hey, now. And as always, I am joined by the man whose name is on the marquee. Come on. He is the icon. Let's go. He is the main event. Bring it. He is the showstopper. My man. He is the whole effing show. One time. He is the bod that runs the pod. Stay hyped. He is the mast that guides the cast. Here we go. You know his name, damn it. He is the Brian Campbell. Oh, yeah. BC, tell him what's on the podcast. As usual, you're going to want to do yourselves a favor and get some of this yet another loaded episode of the In This Corner Pro Wrestling Podcast coming off exclusive one-on-ones with AJ Styles and Roman Reigns. We come right back at you this week with the the, the queen, right? Charlotte Flair, the, the top of the pops, all killer, no filler on this show Just a few days removed, right, from No Mercy in our Instant Analysis Edition. This week, we talked to Charlotte Flair about her new book, about Rick's health condition, about her career, and much more. We also look back at the week that was in WWE and hit the archives. Pay-per-view rewind. Wow. Talk about a timely match with a lot to get into the 1992 Royal Rumble match. You're going to want to get out there to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't already done so. It helps the cause more than you may know. Now let me pass it back to the most passionate man in North America, a man who Renee Young this week on Raw Talk after No Mercy told the listeners how to get in touch with. You can find him on uh, Instagram and Twitter and slide into those DMs, ladies. Oh, man. Nasty Nick Costos. At the Costos on Instagram, at the Costos on Twitter. As always, a phenomenal intro there from the the cousin Yuri, the Victor Conti, the King Balco, the first of our performance enhancing audio, the man whose name is on the marquee, the Brian Campbell. Gentlemen, as always, we begin with the main event. This is the main event. Double main event coming your way here, both emanating from Monday Night Raw, one crossover into 205 Live. That's coming second, but first, Roman Reigns and The Miz. That feud began on Monday night, teasing a potential Shield reunion here as they may go uh, three-on-three with The Miz Tourage. We'll see how that all turns out here leading up to the next Raw pay-per-view. Brian Campbell, what did that do for you this past Monday night? the show-long storyline, Roman Reigns and the Miz 
Well, first of all, it saved. Uh, I don't want to say it saved my fandom in the moment because sometimes we overreact positive or negatively to WWE storylines and the quality of the programming, right? We get all all pissy when we feel like we've wasted our hours. But you know from our instant analysis, I was not happy by the way No Mercy ended. I certainly was not happy by the first 90 minutes of Raw as the Silver King and I are furiously trading DMs in the Slack channel, basically being like, what the F is happening on my TV? But, right, Reigns and The Miz really saved matters and really planted a seed for a program that can do a lot of fun things. The reason why I was tepid was it just felt like this whole Raw episode in general didn't feel like we were going in any good directions. It felt like they were writing in a lot of one-offs. They were sort of setting some... Bizarro world turns in the overall storyline, but I have to say, Reigns and Miz brought it back together. And say what you will about the idea of the Miz Taraj being elevated to this level. The Miz makes it work, and he sure as heck made it work, Nick, at the end of that main event match, or not the main event, at the end of their match earlier in the show, when he beat down Roman Reigns, you know, really dastardly with a chair, and when him, Bo Dallas, and Curtis Axel stood together and put the fists together to mock the shield. You sealed the deal in the heart and the fandom of the Brian Campbell. You brought me back in full circle because it was going to take a beatdown on Reigns this severe to really get us to sign off on the idea, oh, we're really running back the shield right now. We're really going to use maybe potentially long-term the Miztourage in this. I thought pound for pound, end of the day, Nick, it worked for me. I am fired up. Oh, a couple things here. Number one, uh, I'll get to the Miz in a second here, but I have to start with Roman Reigns. Dare I say it, guys? One one day, one week, one show, one Raw into the post-Roman Reigns beating John Cena era, it was a different Roman Reigns on Monday night. Not just in the way that Roman Reigns carried himself, not just in the way that he was delivering lines on the microphone, but in the response that he received from the crowd. I feel like it worked. What WWE was trying to do on Sunday night at No Mercy with Reigns beating Cena, the old proverbial passing of the torch moment, which Cena actually verbally said on Talking Raw after the pay-per-view, I think that it worked. Roman Reigns got more cheers on Monday night than I have heard him get in quite some time. And not only did he get more cheers than I've heard in quite some time, but he got the dueling, let's go Roman, Roman sucks chance. Now remember what it had been. It had just been really booze for Roman Reigns, a smattering of cheers here and there from children or women. But this was the most cheers that he's gotten in the opening promo, Miz TV. Reigns was delivering face lines right to the heel, the dastardly heel Miz in pretty effective fashion and getting a reaction for it. So for me, the biggest story coming out of this was I feel like one show in the Roman Reigns experiment kind of worked. And I feel like the gravitas of him beating Cena and the way that they put that over on the show, showing what Cena said, showing the stills of the match with the commentary over it was very effective to the audience. I think we may be in for a new and improved Roman Reigns, and uh, I'm pretty excited to see that. It looks like, for me, at least one show in, jury's still out. Roman Reigns finally appears to be the guy that Vince McMahon wants him to be one show in to this to this new era with Roman Reigns. And in the escalation to what you're saying in terms of his improvement on the mic, Silver King, could you ask for a better foe to duel with him now than The Miz, right? Like if you're going to continue and try to make Roman Reigns into the guy in the mic that we think he should be, 
this is the right guy to put him in with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really what this is about more than anything else. And a Roman Reigns, the Miz program is something I'm here for. Like, I want to see this. What I don't want to see is Curtis Axel and Bo Dallas (laughs) along with the Shield in a wasted reunion. Um, What, you're telling me that the Miz Taraj is going to have a chance against three former world champions that are two of which are hold the tag team titles and another one who could basically have any title anytime he wants. Like, look, look, I don't know if I'm going to get a chance to say this on the rest of the podcast, so I will. And WWE has been great to us. This Raw was terrible. And I know there's fans online. I read it because I wanted to see if if it was just me alone that felt this way. And it's not. But there's a lot of fans that liked Raw. And they liked not just the Miz Roman stuff, but they liked a lot of things that went down on the show. I don't see it. I was extremely disappointed at No Mercy, as I know you guys were as well. And I was really disappointed on Monday Night Raw. I wasn't really that disappointed in No Mercy, me personally. I thought it was okay. Uh, I mean, what? You gave the two main events like three stars or less, right? So I, gave, that, I mean, but I wasn't disappointed in it. I thought it was okay. I mean, I don't think it lived up to WrestleMania, Billy. No, but, but the point is, Nick, it didn't live up to the expectations. So you, I don't think you yeah. can come oh, out of there. On Sunday night, it's your fault for thinking that was going to happen. It's their, w- it's their fault. You you yeah. give us that shiny wrapping paper, and you and you and you you know you 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 blow the horn. You're going to get me excited. You te- Nick, there's a there's a saying I have on my boxing podcast. The ITC regulars know this. If you tease the bag, you're going to get the mess. Don't tease the I, bag. I got to tell you, I don't know what that means, but I really like it, and I think I'm going to use it the next time I go out on a date with the female. I don't know what it means, but it's, it sounds a little dirty, and and I kind of dig it. Um, the flip side here, Silver King gave us a lot of good stuff to unpack there, and Silver King, we will talk about the Miz Taraj and this potential feud with the Shield coming up here, but I want to get into the Miz and his sort of elevation. This is the best he's ever been, and you know when he had that run with the uh, with the championship, WrestleMania 27 main event against Cena was obviously a debacle, was a disaster. His work leading up to that match though was really great. Like he was carrying Monday Night Raw as the champ. He had that awesome match with John Morrison, if you remember, former tag team partners on Monday Night Raw. But this right now is the best stretch of the Miz's career. He is so dynamite on the microphone that like it just makes a lot of sense. Like he might be the Intercontinental Champion. And like, and in the eyes of some fans, that might be well. It's a downgrade for Roman Reigns, who just beat John Cena. Now he's with the Miz. No, the Miz is insanely over to the point where he's such a heel, and he does nothing face related, but he gets facey just be by virtue of the fact that he's so unbelievably awesome. So I think we have to give Reigns credit, and we also have to give the Miz a ton of credit here. Now, Bri, off what Silver King said, he makes a great point. And I don't know how this is going to sort of go leading up maybe to Survivor Series coming up in November. We'll see how it all shakes out. I don't know if it's ultimately going to end up being Roman Reigns and the Shield with Ambrose and Rollins against the Miz Taraj. I think you'll definitely get the Miz in that match, but it would not surprise me if the Miz brought in two other heels maybe for that six-man match if and when that match happens. Yeah, for long-term for a pay-per-view and you know, and the idea that maybe the Shield would reunite at TLC, who knows, you're going to need it to bring more to the table than the Miz Taraj, certainly. So this this could be short-term, we don't know, but the, the wild card in this for me kind of feels like it's Braun Strowman because he's a man with no country right now in terms of a program. They just let him kind of run buck wild on Raw this week and beat up everybody, including Enzo Amori after the show ended, which we'll get to. But Strowman faced off with Ambrose this week, and there was some backstage talk between Ambrose and Rollins where Seth said, I'm going to go to Angle 
and get that match for myself next week. So I wonder, even though there'd seem storyline, no reason for the Miz and Braun Strowman to team up. I wonder if you do need to bring Strowman into this feud, maybe more people than just Strowman, but at least Braun Strowman to this feud obviously has history with Roman Reigns. That's somewhat unresolved. That would raise the ante. That would raise the stakes. And Nick, to close your point on Miz just doing such great work. Yeah, I mean, it's like he's kind of like a people's champ now. It's like it's hard not like you saw the cheers he got. Guy, which is crazy at right? mania the cheers he got during that cena match it was almost a poor man's version of heel hogan getting chairs against the rock when he wasn't supposed to that's, but that's a smart crowd at wrestlemania like it's it, it means more to me when he's going out on, on miranda monday night raws and getting cheered very true but uh, silver king let me bring you in here where are we going because you're the biggest uh, you know, hater on the idea of the Miztourage being a part of this. How do they make the Shield reunion, which, by the way, will work under any circumstances because it's nostalgia, because it's star power. How do they make it a five-star angle? What do they need to do? I mean, they don't. Uh, you know, that, that's my biggest problem with all of it. And by the way, Miz getting face cheers, which on Sunday night I was told he doesn't get from normal crowds. Well, we just saw it on Monday night. I'll, I'll say this. Like, I want to see Roman Reigns and The Miz one-on-one, and we're going to see it Monday night for the Intercontinental title. I don't think that's a bad feud for Roman to have. I don't mind Roman taking the belt from The Miz, because if you're going to have Miz lose the title after all this time, after his extended reign, who, you know, who better than Roman Reigns to take it off him and run an extended series? I just don't, like... Reigns is not winning the Intercontinental title. I would... Why not? Like, there's no good reason for him not to. Not because he's the number one guy in the company. He's not winning the Intercontinental belt. It's not happening. So, well, the number one guy on Raw right now doesn't show up every week, and the number one title on Raw that's actually defended and makes its own appearance on the show is the Intercontinental title. Miz is completely over. As you guys said, Miz right now could—he's in the best stretch of his career. He's better prepared to be a world champion now than he's ever been. And the fact that he's the one holding the IC title, the fact that guys like— Ambrose and Rollins are not even in that picture because they say, well, Miz is doing such good work with this IC title. We're not going to put it on one of these guys. Let's put him as a tag team. That tells me all I need to know about what they think of Miz and thankfully the IC title, which had been denigrated for way too long. It deserves that that billing. I don't see any problem with Roman Reigns potentially having it. This is a feud I would personally book for two or three months. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't see a problem with me being with Jennifer Lopez. That's not going to happen either. Now, the, uh, the Braun Strowman stuff with Ambrose, I thought, was pretty effective. I think it just told the story that it needed to tell. You have the very angry Braun Strowman and the fearless Dean Ambrose, and Strowman takes his frustration out on Ambrose. So I thought that that worked. And, Bri, I think it would be pretty cool. And, look, we've seen The Miz do great work with with big men before, right? Remember when when they had when he had the tag team with the big show? How funny would it be to have a sort of Miz-Strowman alliance where Strowman sort of tolerates The Miz and The Miz is acting like they're best friends? I think that could be pretty funny. I oh, think great. That you might be onto something there. There'd be uneasiness the whole time that Braun's eventually going to turn on him, right? There's got to be some storyline reason for Braun to Braun to want to join forces. But what it will do do it's almost like the idea we said of maybe it's time to put Paul Heyman with Braun Strowman to speak for him let the Miz speak for Braun Strowman for a season and you're gonna find magic but Nick we all know if they activate the 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 full shield reunion every fan's gonna pretty much do this I busted it actually big dog so like I said it almost doesn't matter do I want to see it even under cheap and watered down purposes? Yeah, I kind of do. All right. I've never been a giant shield mark, but they're trying to move network subscriptions right now. I think the last couple of months showed you that this is a break glass type of situation. And I think it's going to work anyway. 
And look, maybe it leads to an Ambrose-Rollins match coming up at WrestleMania if Ambrose turns heel like we all expect, and it serves to springboard Reigns into his program with Brock Lesnar coming up at, uh, at WrestleMania 34. One final note here on this before we move on to the second part of our main event. Um, Bri, you mentioned it. I thought that the beatdown of Roman Reigns was very, very, very effective because it was very, very, very violent and something that we're not used to seeing necessarily from The Miz, who's done some dastardly stuff in his career, but certainly from Bo Dallas and Curtis Axel with the multiple chair shots and then teasing that they were leaving the ring before coming back into the ring. Miz hits the skull crushing finale onto the steel chair, cuts a promo, um, basically laying over Roman Reigns' lifeless body. I just thought that was really good and a piece of inspired booking. And look, I'm with Silver King. The first 90 minutes of Raw were not great. I thought they saved it with the last 90 minutes. I didn't think it was as bad as, as you guys, maybe you guys thought it did. And I thought that moment was very, very solid. You saw the Miz's uh, genius come full circle on this night. He played chicken crap heel early in the night, opposite Reigns, almost to the degree where it went too far. He's like, oh, I got a pregnant wife at home, Roman. I'm in a suit. I can't wrestle you. But when he got the advantage, he instantly turned into a vicious front runner. And like Nick said, getting in Roman's face, skull crushing finale twice, one time into a chair. That's the full range of Miz the heel and why he's so good. All right, let's move on now to the second part of our double main event, Brian Campbell. Enzo Amore, in the year of our Lord, 2017, closed out Monday Night Raw with the promo. There's a sentence I never thought that I would utter. And then on 205 Live, yet another promo from Enzo Amore. I'll be honest, watching this, I wanted to hate it. I did not hate it. Not only did I not hate it, I really, really liked it. That's probably the best way you could say it. This should have been awful. This should have put the cement in the fact that they mailed in Raw this week. Raw was horrible. Well, something happened along the way. This segment ruled. And something else happened along the way. The insertion of Enzo Amori into the Cruiserweight division and jetpacking him to a title that you can argue both in storyline and in real life he doesn't deserve is the best thing to happen to both that show and the division since it has launched. And I hate to say that because it goes against the true identity of that division, which is we are the pure wrestlers. We give you the indie style. When we are allowed to, right? Like at the CWC, we give you pure greatness that you don't see in WWE. And now what are we doing? We're just letting a guy who can talk run the show. Well, the guy who can talk is delivering shoot-style promos as he did on Raw when one by one he he verbally undressed in hilarious fashion every single member of that division who came out there. But the real key was the interplay and the attack where he already had the note from Angle, meaning Amore, saying, if anyone attacks me, they lose their chance at the title. We saw Neville break through that moment and attack anyway. Nick, a lot of people online talking about double turn here. I don't know if I say that, but I'll give WWE credit. A lot of nuances because coming in, Enzo's the baby face who we all hated. Then we saw him deliver some really awesome lines. So then he's kind of a heel because he's talking bad. Well, then he gets beaten down after the show and by Neville. So now he's kind of a baby face again. And then Neville at the same time comes in as a heel does a dastardly thing, but we love the dastardly thing so much. He's almost a babyface again. It's a lot of gray area, but it friggin' worked. All right, so let's first have a mea culpa issued from yours truly. I don't think any of us, I mean, maybe the same, but I don't think it'd be possible to be harder on Enzo Amore than I have been over the last few months. So I'm going to issue a mea culpa right now. Enzo Amore was 
great on Monday Night Raw. Not good, great. And he is really sensational on the microphone. And now they have given him a platform that actually works, where he's playing this chicken crap heel who is open about the fact that he's a chicken crap heel and open about the fact that the only reason he's been given this opportunity is because he can talk and no one else can, and therefore he is the star of 205 Live. I loved the promo to close out Monday Night Raw. And Silver King, this is why I disagree with you on Raw. I love the rain stuff, and I love the main event. And this was a really solid 15 minutes to end Monday Night Raw where Enzo absolutely crushed it and tore poor Rich Swan apart and Cedric Alexander and Grand Metalik and, and the rest of the, the Joe Bears up there from 205 Live. Damn, that was good. And and Neville, I thought that Neville was also really good on the microphone, guys, where Neville sort of had to step out of his comfort zone where he's been this heel, right? And sort of cut a face-ish promo. And they had the nice tease there when they were in the ring against each other when we didn't know if Neville was going to attack him or not. And now you built a storyline where Neville's going to have to try and get his title back. He's not going to get a shot against the, the uh, against Enzo. So I thought that this was really effective. And I just really liked the way that it worked. And I'm all in on Enzo Amore, the, uh, the cruiserweight champion at this point. There were two really good segments on Raw, and neither of them, when you first saw the the you know the people participating in the segments, you thought they would work. This was one of them. We're going to talk about another one later in the show. But yeah, you know, you have been down on Enzo, and I'm glad to hear all that from you. I was never that down on him. I just thought the booking of him was very poor, and maybe some of that was from locker room stuff, and and maybe some of that is WWE just not really knowing what to do with a guy like him who they've never really put over clean. And they still aren't putting over clean. He's he's winning matches, but he's winning them in a dastardly way. Listen, Enzo deserves this cruiserweight title way more than Jinder Mahal deserves the WWE title. And he's already done, done a better job with the cruiserweight title than Jinder Mahal has done with the WWE title. The thing about Raw that kind of annoyed me, and it does factor into this, is they're booking now around Monday Night Football. They had the main event at halftime, and they had what would normally have been a mid-show, really strong promo segment at the end of the show. And that's it wasn't bad because it did give some shine to the Cruiserweight division and 205 line. Like you said, Nick, they do need to sell WWE Network subscriptions. So that's all well and good. But, man, it just showed in many ways how weak that division is. Enzo came in, and he's immediately the biggest star. What he said is 100% accurate. There is no one else there that can talk. And by the way, uh, Brian's man, Cedric Alexander, he took some hard body blows, having absolutely no personality. And if you want to know why he never got that match and that's that program against Neville, well, Enzo said it. That seems to be true. Well, I want to I want to just commend the Silver King here because that's the best statement he made. They're booking around Monday Night Football, where for the last four weeks they went head to head. And I know Monday Night Football wasn't running all four of those weeks, but they went head to head with Monday Night Football. This is a retreat and a little bit of a submission that I do not enjoy. I think because the Cowboys were playing. No, and and you get it. Look, you get it, right? The same thing against the presidential debates. It's the same thing. You get it. But don't do that. That's submission. Go bring your best stuff. Go head to head. Well, look, this no, seg- no, don't because you lose. Like, but why would you do that? It's like marching into a battle where you know you're going to die. Like, why? Do, like, like you lose if you do that. You are not going to go head to head with Monday Night Football when the Dallas Cowboys are playing and beat. Them. Did Eric so Bischoff you- lose? I- Did Eric Bischoff lose going head to head with Monday Night Raw? Monday Night Raw and the NFL are two entirely different things. I mean, come on. It's not apples to apples. Yeah, but WWE, this also isn't 1997. We're talking now where people, if Monday Night Raw is on, and I assume, Nick, this is what you do sometimes. You watch Monday Night Football, and you tape Monday Night Raw, 
and then you watch Monday Night Raw. So if you're watching a taped edition of Monday Night Raw on your DVR, you're seeing a show that's been changed around and edited and maybe not as much has been put forward for a live show. So WWE, they need to realize a lot of their viewers aren't going to be watching live on Monday nights during NFL season. So book your damn show normally. Book it exactly as you normally would. Don't worry about the live crowd. Put on an awesome show, and the viewers, the people that watch your product, are going to love it because you're what putting out the best product you can. What about Ray? Like, like that's insane, insane. Like, you guys, like, do you guys understand the television business? Like, that is not. You don't do a show for a DVR audience. You do it. You do. It's like Bill O'Reilly. We'll do it live. It's for live. Okay. Well, let me say that. Then that 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 abuts your your point. That kind of makes your point false. Then do it live. Challenge Monday Night Football. Don't work around them. If you do that, you lose. If that happens, you lose. Why do you want? Like, it's like them saying, "Let's go in and let's get our brains beaten in and put our best stuff out there when people aren't going to be watching." What are you kidding? You know how you don't lose you put your best stuff out there and you slowly bring them back in from football like, so what so wait so so wwe wins the halftime quarter hour and that saves their three hour show on monday nights going up against football i, I would guess if they book that show normally their rating isn't any different than it is if they put that roman match directly at halftime on monday night football so they win one quarter hour over a three hour show i mean come on you can't you can't put your best stuff out there during the fourth quarter of a Dallas Cowboys Monday night game. Like, I will just say this though: this is the television business, but, guys. This is how ratings work. Okay, but Raw debuted in 1993, right? Monday Night Football has been going on the whole stretch of Raw. This is not new. Don't submit now, right? Either take it off Monday night or bring your best stuff. I just want to wrap up this Enzo thing. So after the match, I'm not sure if everybody saw it. It was a WWE.com exclusive. Strowman came in and destroyed Enzo. Power slammed him after Neville had beaten him up. The whole division then comes in and picks the bones almost to gratuitous level. They're just doing finishing moves in a circle, almost like a, a like some kind of weird orgy. It was just weird. I but, knew that was coming. Yeah, you knew that was coming. <laughs> but but the thing is, Enzo bounced back on Tuesday night. I don't know if everybody here listens, watches 205 Live. Enzo's making you need to now because he came out and did an incredible promo with holding a crutch, ripped everybody in the division again, then showed the footage of what happened after Raw. Everyone's yelling at him, you deserve it, meaning you deserve the beatdown he got. He definitely turns that around. You're like, you're right. I do deserve this title. And the way he's handling the crowd is perfect. They did a backstage segment. He agreed to help Arya Davari. It led to a main event of Neville versus Davari. And here's where this whole feud took another step forward positively, Nick. At the end of the main event, Enzo snaps, enters the ring, forces the disqualification, and beats Neville down with a crutch in violent fashion and talks trash in his face like they were on the street. It felt real, Nick. To me, it took this level, this feud to a whole new level. It's fantastic and really like, and it just shows that it was the right move to put the strap on on Enzo. Whether you agree or disagree, whether you think he can work or not, it doesn't make a difference. The bottom line, we just opened talking about 205 Live in the main event of In This Corner for the first time ever. And the reason is because of Enzo Amore. And with that, guys, we move on to Hero or Zero with our corrupt judge, Comrade Silver King, Brian Campbell, H. Silver King, question number one. So in a repeat of their famous NXT feud and feuds and independence as well, Kevin Owens basically killed Sami Zayn again uh, with a powerbomb into the ring apron to close SmackDown. That led to Shane McMahon coming out, chasing Owens away. 
Assuming Owens moves on, win or lose, to McMahon uh, at the next pay-per-view at Hell in a Cell, is another owens Zane feud a hero or zero for you guys, BC? It, it's it's a hard to answer this question because I don't think we're getting another owens Zane feud. And you say, well, didn't he just play a big role in this? The feud is Kevin Owens-Shane McMahon. I think Zane is, is sort of a double-down reminder on what they're trying to do with KO right now, which is push him how they should as a diabolical, almost serial killer-like heel when he gets in that zone, when he gets that look, that blank look on his face. It was almost gratuitous to go back and just kind of redo the Sami Zayn thing all over again, although you loved Zayn's passionate promo. I'm going to give this a slight hero because there's not really much bad I can say about it. Okay, they, yeah, they ran back the same thing over again, but the whole point of this, in my eyes, was to move the chains toward the Hell in the Cell of KO versus Shane and just keep teasing you along. Not much really happened in my eyes in the end. They repeated the Sami Zayn, Zayn thing. He did the power bomb in the apron, which is always a vicious thing. He showed the crazy look in his eyes, and he ran away from Shane. In the end, it's a slight hero. I'm fine with it. No big bombshell for me. It is a massive, gargantuan, colossal zero. And here's why. They've been running the same exact storyline with these two. What about last week on Pay-Per-View Rewind? We saw the same exact thing that happened at the end of SmackDown on Pay-Per-View Rewind because they have nothing new with Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn. Here's a thought. If you're going to have two guys embroiled in this storyline, which has taken place over the course of years and looks likely to continue until the end of time or one of us dies, whichever comes first, at some point, shouldn't Sami Zayn get his comeuppance on Kevin Owens? Owens, or is he just going to get his ass kicked every single time by KO? It loses its effect after a while when one guy gets his brains beaten in constantly. I mean, seriously, has Sami Zayn ever once gotten a one-up over Kevin Owens on any platform or any show that's actually mattered? It has never happened. You knew what was going to happen. You knew that KO was going to beat him up. And what happened at the end? Sami Zayn is left looking like an afterthought. He's being carried away by the officials, the referees, and whatever, waiting for Shane McMahon to make the save. Shane McMahon, who's not an active wrestler. So you sacrifice him. It's not even about Sami Zayn. I like Sami Zayn. I could do without him. He can't talk, which kills him for me. But he's a great worker, and you waste him in this regard. Like, and the storyline's stupid. That's really the most offensive thing. Like, if you are going to do this storyline with these two over the course of years, then you have to have a blow-off where Sami Zayn has to win. And it's never going to happen because they've conditioned the fans to think that Sami Zayn's a loser because KO jobs him out at every single turn. with Enough Kevin Owens, enough Sami Zayn at this point for me. Put him on different shows because this act is tired. It is played. Give us something different if you're going to do it, and they're not going to do it. It's always going to be the same. It's a zero. Wow. Let me just play this. I mean, you got to give it up to him, Silver King. He, that was that was the fire. That was the Greek. He spilled. I mean, that, that's a devastating loss for you right there, BC. Not only is it a zero if it's a one week angle, it's a huge zero, like Nick said, if it's going past this. And yeah, Nick, easy, easy point. And Nick pointed easy. out that 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 you know, I essentially gave it a slight hero first to kind of mail it in and move it along. And Nick hammered out why that's actually a zero. And if they really wanted to take this feud next level, we probably should have saw Steph McMahon or some further step forward of you hurt our old dad. You're going to pay for this rather than just or, Shane or, or they could have just used Ty Dillinger in the same spot and had KO knock him out for a month. Like it, it would have worked just as well. All right. Moving on to number two. Monday was a weird and extraordinary night for the extraordinary Finn Balor who has a new extraordinary nickname. Seriously, 
I told you guys the demon was dead. And if you didn't believe it before, well, you have plenty of extraordinary reasons now to know it. They called him extraordinary five times on that show. Anyway, after fighting 48-year-old Goldust, Balor was taunted again by Bray Wyatt. The feud continues. Nick, hero or zero for the extraordinary angle and the continuation of the Wyatt feud with Finn Balor. Guys, I think that we we reached a scientific breakthrough on Monday night. I think we found the cure for insomnia. It's another Finn Balor, Bray Wyatt pay-per-view match, which seems to be on the horizon. It's like, really? Like, I love WWE. Like, like, like Silver, they've been great to us, right? And like, for the, I think for the most part, by and large, the programming, I actually thought the programming was pretty good this week. But like, is there really nothing to do with these two guys that for the, like, it should have ended after SummerSlam. And yet here we are now, and we're going to do it apparently again. So that's a zero for Finn Balor and Bray Wyatt. I actually kind of liked the Goldust stuff. In a three-hour show, I thought it was sort of interesting. It looked like a one-off, right? So I don't think that we'll get a Goldust Balor continuation next week, whether on the microphone or in the ring. I thought it was fairly interesting to stage a one-night program with a couple of backstage vignettes and then a match where Balor went over clean. It was predictable, yeah, but I kind of liked it. And I like heel Dustin Rhodes. I like heel Goldust. And I like the fact that they brought him back to being a heel now. As for the extraordinary nickname, I mean, this is what WWE does. Um, Brian, do you have the sound effect of the old Undertaker calling WrestleMania the ultimate thrill ride? And the ultimate thrill ride will be your last ride. (laughs) I mean, listen, when you have Mark Calloway calling WrestleMania the ultimate thrill ride, you can call Finn Balor extraordinary as many times as you want. Is it hokey? Yeah, but that's what WWE kind of does. It's a... It's a hero for me on Balor Goldust, the one-night program. It's a massive zero if we're getting another month of Balor and Bray Wyatt. Yeah, I mean, hard to disagree with really any of the grades or themes that Nick is going here. It's just, it's such a Vince move to look at Finn Balor. And look, I'm not against going away from the Demon almost full-time and only using it to pay-per-view majors or year or in a big feud. We've already talked about that ad nauseum. I kind of like the Fonzie look because he made him look look cool in a leather jacket with the smoke. But they just can't leave things the way they are when they're good. They're always trying to do one more thing to commercialize or ruin their top guys. This was another moment of that. The Extraordinary is no worse, but still just as bad as WWE's rock star Shinsuke Nakamura. I hate this crap. Finn Balor was already so cool. I don't have a problem with the new trunks, but why go to the friggin' extraordinary? It's so damn stupid 1993 WWF that I cannot stand it. And as far as continuing this feud, it could not be a more of a massive zero because the booking at No Mercy did not give you any wiggle room or reason to continue this feud because you buried Bray Wyatt again. You told the world that he would lose to a guy who's not activating something, the demon, that makes him stronger. You have once again destroyed a top-level guy in Bray Wyatt. Now we're supposed to believe that he has that he's going to bring back the kids singing, you have the whole world in your hands. What are we going to see? Piles of blood show up on Finn again and the lights will go off and there'll be kids inside the cage singing to John Cena. Stop <laughs> the madness. You had to know you were not going to win this extraordinary question unless... You ripped extraordinary. BC gets that point, and we move to number three. A bright spot from Raw, which I uh, alluded to earlier, was the segment with Alexa Bliss and Mickey James, which started slow and had you wondering why the hell is Mickey James out here, but really picked up some steam with some harsh lines and an assault from Mickey James. Uh, BC, hero zero on this budding feud that we didn't want, but maybe we did need. Look, we're all grown men here, right? I busted it. 
big dog, okay? And that's the reason why this is a massive hero, because it shouldn't have been on paper, like the Silver King said, like a lot of things on Raw this week, like cruiserweights in the main event shouldn't have worked. And the reason this shouldn't have worked, of course, is because Mickey James, I don't care about her history, she doesn't deserve this shot in the, in the storyline right now. You know what I wanted to see Alexa Bliss say back to her during that argument? Didn't you lose twice to Emma on Raw, and aren't you dressed in some awful in-ring gear, and you're just being used as a jobber to the stars these days? But they somehow made you forget about that. And it worked because, like I said, we're all guys here. Two hot chicks trading some pretty smart back-and-forth trash talk, even talking about training bras and going the whole you're an old lady gimmick. It just worked because it was real. It was shoot style, and they had real chemistry in there. It's a very large surprise hero. And Mickey James, who at times I think they don't use well enough, other times I think she's past her prime, she showed you. Give her something to work with, she'll bring it. couple things to unpack here. Number one, um, I think that we have forgotten yours truly number one on the list. Just how good a performer Mickey James is. Like, she was fantastic on the microphone on Monday night. Like, she'll go into the Hall of Fame one day. And, like, this is the reason why. Like, she's been a great performer her entire career. So that needs to be said. I think we had all collectively, no fault of our own, she'd been gone for a while and then treated like a Jobert, as BC said, had kind of forgotten about the talent that Mickey James possesses. So it was good to see her out there um, doing what she did. Also worth noting, it's the best she's looked in quite some time. She looked great. Alexa looked great. Big dog style. That was uh, that was very good. And also effective about this, Alexa's been sort of the very vile heel, right, that will not pull punches and say really nasty stuff about her opponents. We have not really seen, with the sole exception of maybe like a couple half-hearted Sasha Banks insult, no one has come at Alexa Bliss in the storyline, the way that Mickey James did. So I thought that's why it was pretty effective as well. Um, it's a big time hero for me. And again, um, worth noting, they both looked great and that had a lot to do with it. So kudos to Mickey James and Alexa Bliss, big dog. Yeah, good points from both of you. This one really could have gone either way. I like that Nick kind of noted how Alexa finally got a little comeuppance on the mic. She's gotten it in the ring plenty, but on the mic, she got it this time. So I'm going to go with Nick on this one. So he has a two to one lead going into the championship questions here. The Bullet Club minus Kenny Omega, attempted an invasion of Raw in Ontario, Canada, uh, California, Ontario, California. About 100 fans showed up following a Hot Topic appearance earlier in that day. They kind of walked around the ticket lines. If you haven't seen it and you're listening to this podcast, you can watch the latest episode of Being in Being the Elite for context here. Uh, so it's only going to be one point here, but I have two questions I want answered. Number one, hero or zero on the invasion effort. And number two, hero or zero on seemingly everything about the Bullet Club either being an homage or, well, a ripoff. Okay, first off, is the Bullet Club really the Bullet Club without Kenny Omega? I'm not so sure it is, but yeah, we can call it the Bullet Club, even if the leader is not there and, and the best person in the Bullet Club, which is Mr. Omega. First off, um, it gets a hero for the effort. Why? Because it's funny. And why? Because... That's what the Bullet Club does with with Cody and, and Marty Skrull and Hangman Page and the beautiful Brandy and uh, and the Young Bucks. So I really I thought it was pretty funny. I watched that. I really liked it. And as for the Bullet Club being a ripoff, like that's the gimmick. Like they're not trying to they're not trying to make it like they're being original. Like that's sort of the deal. Did you guys see a couple weeks ago? Maybe it was a week ago. One of the Young Bucks tweeted at Daniel Bryan. Are you OK if we incorporate the yes 
chance into into the bullet club and said we'll even do the two sweet hand signal while we're doing the yes uh signal into the air to differentiate it a little bit and daniel bryan gave them a tongue-in-cheek reply like sort of like laughing about the whole thing like that's the deal with the bullet club like they they ripped off too sweet they ripped off suck it that's why it works i think that's why it's so funny they're not trying to purport like they made it up and are being original. They are clearly ripping off the NWO, clearly ripping off the Generation X and being open about the fact that they're doing it. It works for me. And I think it's subjective. So if Bry disagrees or Silver King, you disagree, I think it's fine. But for me, I think it's kind of funny. So I'm going to give it a hero. That song works so well and their show works so well because, yes, there's a lot of homage, there's a lot of ripoff, there's a lot of fun tributes going on, but it's so original. It's so unique. It's so fresh. It's so what's happening now, right? We're using what's happening then to promote that we're doing something new about what's happening now. Do you know what this felt like in the end? Unfortunately, a massive zero because it was too deep in the nostalgia pool and because how do you not have Kenny Omega as the front of this? Because you didn't. Because you chose the wrong time to do this. It really came out as at best cute and at worst a waste of time that downgraded the cool factor of the Bullet Club brand. And I know that might sound too harsh, but watching this video, I didn't enjoy any of it. I really didn't. I didn't pop for one moment of it. It felt like a desperate plea for attention. And the thing that has made this New Japan run with these Bullet Club and these American influences and Canadian influences in there has been, it hasn't been about desperately look at us. It's been more about if you're a smart fan and you try to find out what really is the best wrestling in the world, you'll eventually find out or hear about us. And once you do, you're going to be like drunk with enthusiasm like we get on this show. This moment felt like what they don't normally do, which is, hey, everybody, look at us. Look at us right here. Nothing was accomplished. They cracked a few jokes. You had a small pile of fans outside, you know, screaming for when Cody did the Independence Day speech at the end. Like, again, it's cute. It accomplished nothing. You want to do this further on down the road when the NJPW expansion is at a much higher level if it gets there and you really have a divide in the crowd and you're ready for your ECW moment or your next level moment to try to make a war happen. It's too early in the war for this. It came across as cheap nostalgia and most importantly for the third time when you don't have your face at the front of it, you didn't stamp it with the legitimacy that it needed. It was just another being the elite episode. And when you're going to try something like this, you have to go all in. You have to make it really work. This did not work. It's a zero. Hold on. Before Silver King judges the point, I want to add two things here. Number one, you can't have Kenny Omega as part of this because if you do, it becomes the, the biggest story. Like Kenny Omega can't, could not be a part of this, whether he's healthy or not, because if Omega's there, then it's the lead story of everything everywhere. And I don't think that's what they were trying to accomplish. Also, there is no war. Like, the war would be a million soldiers against 20 soldiers. Like, it'd be like the reverse game of Thrones. Well, there's a critical war. There's a critical war. No, but there is no war. This is not like WCW against WWF back in the late 90s. Like, there's no war. WWE wins by a landslide. Like, it's never, New Japan will never beat WWE. So, like, I don't think it's ever going to come to that tipping point where, like, they do an invasion. Like, I think that was part of the tongue-in-cheek of this. Like, it's never going to get to that point. They were mocking it. So, I just wanted to add that before Silver King came in. I think with Omega, it wouldn't have worked with Omega because with Omega, it would have felt more serious. And I think the whole point of this was to have it be a joke.
I like that comeback from you, Nick, but I do think this was an example of the Bullet Club feeling its backs up against the wall a little bit. WWE is coming at them for a little infringement. Cody doesn't have the rights to use his last name because the company owns it. They're actually angry at WWE, and I totally agree with BC here. It was a plea for attention. It was a look-at-me moment, and that, as much as the Bullet Club does want attention, it did seem a little bit too desperate, so it is a zero, and BC... Gets. He just wanted to someone to them, even though Brian's wrong and you're both wrong and, 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 and devastatingly wrong, too. But go ahead. It's all right, so, Nick. It's all right. You can't handle the truth. Ain't the truth. It's a lie. But go ahead. BC gets the point, And we are tied to two heading into number five, staying with the topic of, you know, Ring of Honor and New Japan. Kenny Omega will defend the IWGP United States Championship in the United States for the first time at Ring of Honor Global Wars in Chicago on October 15th against Yoshi Hashi. Guys, there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot of storyline elements as well. What do you think of this title defense? What do you think of Yoshi Hashi being his first opponent, BC hero or zero? I got to give this a slight zero, and I hate doing that. But if we're really honest with ourselves here, and we watched the G1, and we did, and we really invested a lot of time, there's an A and a B pool, right? There's a lot of wrestlers that give you a lot of different things. I really thought Yoshihashi performed the worst of everyone in both groups. He was the guy who was most willing to fast-forward the matches. So to put the full context here, Kenny Omega just came back from knee surgery. Just 18 days after knee surgery, he headlined Sunday's pay-per-view NJPW Destruction in Kobe, Japan. The main event made his first defense of that U.S. NJPW or IWGP title against Juice Robinson. Now, Juice had pulled the upset in the G1 August 5th. Kenny went for the one-winged angel. Juice rolled them up. It was a great story. It was actually the biggest upset in G1 history when you take the differential in points at that moment. They run it back. Everybody get out there that has the subscription and watch this match. Just short of 33 minutes, basically a five-star classic. Kenny and Juice empty the tank. There are some incredible spots, like Kenny picking up Juice on the ring apron and suplexing him to the floor. I mean, there's just one spot after another. Afterwards, Kenny gives a great promo, like he always does in the ring. The confetti comes down. And then at the press conference, Yoshihashi comes in, and it was okay, right? Like, Yoshihashi says, I got a lot of heart. Kenny dismisses him, like, get the heck out of here. You're Gato's bitch, which was hilarious. Finally, tries to offer him a Coors Light can, just, like, dismisses him. Yoshi stands his ground. Kenny's like, all right, you want to do this? We'll do this. I know why they're doing it. They have a partnership with Ring of Honor. This match with Yoshihashi in Chicago will be a Ring of Honor-branded event. If you're in New Japan... You want Juice versus Kenny to be under the New Japan banner in Japan like you just did, and they gave a five-star match. But it makes more sense to the idea that you're trying to invade America slowly to put Juice in his hometown of Chicago against Kenny, your top new face of this American push, and allow Ring of Honor to do that to further push your brand. I get why they didn't do it. I have no qualms about the fact that Kenny can make a great match out of anybody. But Kenny versus Yoshi in the next step in this expansion is not what I wanted to see at this point. It's a zero. Um, All right. First off, the Omega Juice match. I watched a lot of it. Fantastic. Like Brian said, go out of your way to watch it. It's a typical Kenny Omega match, which means it was absolutely extraordinary. Three things here off of Brian's answer. Number one, let's not talk about Juice Robinson. I like Juice Robinson. This is not an anti-Juice Robinson comment, so don't get it twisted. Let's not make like Juice Robinson is CM Punk. He's not. 
He's not the conquering hero in the city of Chicago. All right. So I don't think like that's overblown. Like, oh, it's his hometown of Chicago. The guy's not CM Punk. Okay? He's, he's just not. Period. End of story. Question for you. Brian and Adam, I'm going to ask both of you guys this question. It is a yes or no question. So I, I want one word answers. If you have a, a Ring of Honor show in your hometown and Kenny Omega's in the main event, are you going to the show? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Adam. Absolutely. Yes or no question. Yes. You have confidence that Kenny Omega can carry pretty much a broomstick to a four plus star match. Yes or no. He carried Toriano to a comedic it's, classic. It is, it is a yes or no yes. question. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. Therefore, who the hell cares who's in the main event? It's about Kenny. Kenny's going to carry Yoshihashi to a four-and-a-half-star match because that's what Kenny Omega does. The crowd's going to love it. It's not about Yoshihashi. It's not about Juice Robinson. It's about Kenny Omega. People are going to go no matter what because Kenny's in the main event. The match is going to be great because Kenny's in it. It's a hero all the way around. You got anything there, BC, or no? I mean, I think you know. I think my my points stand the test of time, right? It's going to be a good match anyway, but you still kind of played yourself. I get why NJPW did it, though. Your point stands, and it's a losing one. Nick gets the win oh, from behind, on. three to two. That was a pretty incredible performance by yours truly. I thought it was closer to five nothing, but I'll, I'll take the oh, three. Oh come two. on, the judges. I mean, it doesn't really fit. There's no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit. You must acquit. I mean, come on, come on. That was actually said in a courtroom. Like that wasn't like Jackie Childs from Seinfeld, right? Like that. Yeah, was no, happened. he said that. No, that that happened in the trial. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely incredible I mean, to talk about, like a pro, like pro wrestling imitating, like real life imitating pro wrestling. Um, story for another time. Um, so, Bri, before we break down Royal Rumble '92, you and I had the opportunity. Um, Silver King doing a great job securing it, making it happen. To sit down with. Charlotte Flair a couple days ago. Bri, lead us into that awesome interview that you and I conducted. Uh, Charlotte Flair just put out the book with her father, Ric Flair, Second Nature, a, a, a joint double autobiography there that we'll talk about. Great to get to talk to her. Obviously, the timing, right? Coming off Rick's basically miraculous recovery from, from double organ failure. He just got sent home. There's great news there. Charlotte also back on TV after a very slow summer, not in the title picture on SmackDown Live you want to talk about someone being open, someone sharing what's really on her heart during a very difficult time. Get ready to hear what Charlotte Flair has to say. Always a pleasure to welcome in the queen herself, Charlotte Flair, into the In This Corner podcast. And Charlotte, right off the top, thanks for joining us. Our thoughts and prayers from this podcast, from many of our listeners, have been with you, your family, your dad, Rick, during a very trying time. But we've seen some incredible and miraculous news, of course, over the past few weeks. Can you give us an update on how your dad is doing right now? Well, first, I know my dad appreciates the thoughts and prayers. Uh, they have meant a lot to him as well as the family. He actually went home on Friday. Nice. So, um, obviously, there can be better news than that. And um, I'm hoping he'll make Starcade for me versus Maddie in October. So he's doing great. Thanks for asking. Very, very good news for everyone involved. You and your father, of course, have co-authored the joint autobiography titled Second Nature, The Legacy of Ric Flair and the Rise of Charlotte in stores now. A lot of people as well very interested in finally seeing this ESPN 30 for 30 movie about your dad's life. I'm interested in asking, what did you learn about yourself and your relationship with your dad going through the process of working on this book together? So... So in 2007, 
when my dad retired, I really couldn't understand why he was having such a hard time. And I was so frustrated. There were a lot of arguments and I was extremely hard on him. Um, because I, I looked at him and said, dad, no one had a better career than you. You've had this amazing life, you know, go out on top. And that's retiring against Shawn Michaels, arguably, arguably one of the greatest performers of our time. Right. So I, I just, I couldn't grasp why. And then, you know, fast forward to where I am today and then working on the book for two years and being a part of the WWE, I just, wish I could go back in time and uh, have acted differently and been more supportive and been a support system for my dad because now I can't imagine not ever doing this and nothing is like the rush of a crowd or walking through a gorilla in your entrance. I mean, there's nothing like, there's nothing like performing in front of the WWE audience. And my dad did that his, you know, 40 years of his life. So now I understand why he had such a hard time and you never want to let it go. Charlotte, I'm kind of embarrassed asking this question, but you know, you grew up in the public eye and, and life can be difficult for regular people who are not in the public eye. So I, I can't even imagine sort of what this last month, six weeks, two months has been like for you. And for me personally, I lost my father a few years ago. He passed away, obviously very tough. And I think that losing a parent or having a sick parent or going through what you went through is something that a lot of, if not all of our listeners can relate to. I almost feel wrong asking this, but given the fact that you've been in the public eye for so long and given your status with WWE and the fact that people really care about this sort of stuff, how did this go for you? What were your feelings like while this was happening? Not as Charlotte Flair, the WWE performer, but Charlotte Flair, the human being. I think in the beginning... I was really frustrated because not only was my dad sick, I just wanted to protect him. Um, you know, whether it was the media glorifying what, you know, hospitalized him and, you know, to begin with, or whether it was judging his lifestyle or anything that was negative, it was hard for me because I couldn't protect him. And that's, you know, it's like anyone can say something ill about their family member, but no one else can. I just was very sensitive to, you know, whether people were worried or weren't worried. I just wanted not only my dad to get better, but I, I didn't like the rumor, rumor mill going around about why he was sick. And that was hard for me. But um, also, you know, I know the 30 for 30 is coming out and, there are just so many positive and exciting things that I know my dad has been so proud of. And one is, you know, been have to have the opportunity to work on this 30 for 30. And I just, I just felt so hopeless or helpless that I couldn't do anything more for him other than just sit there and hold his hand. And my dad's always been my rock and the strongest person I know. I mean, he has never once in my entire life said he didn't feel well or, was hurting. So to see him in this state was very different for me. Like I've never seen my dad fragile and that was hard. For you, Charlotte, in, in those moments. And I, th I think you can kind of tell that it's like a jumble of emotions for you, whether it's anger, whether it's sadness, 
was this sort of the toughest stretch that, that you've had to deal with in quite some time here? And, and again, like I know it was very tough for your entire family. I'm curious as it was for you, the way it was for me, the way it was for my sister, obviously a different scenario, but I can't imagine that this was easy for you to deal with here with all the emotions that must've been running through your body and through your head. So this is a very complicated answer, but nothing will be harder than losing my brother. Um, Solely because, one, he was my other half, but to see the hurt in my mom and dad and my siblings, and I feel like my dad, you know, having to slow down due to being sick, this was like the first time since my brother passing that it was kind of a regrouping for the entire family. And... I don't know if my dad's ever, you know, dealt with losing his son. I don't know how you lose a child and ever deal with it or move on. But this was also, you know, eye-opening for my dad to realize he has to take care of himself too because I need him around. And there's other, like, his fiance needs him, his other two kids, my sister, Megan, and my brother, David, like, we all need him. So it was just a, it, it was a, a bunch of different things. But in the end, I think, you know, my dad and the family – are going to come out stronger from all of this. And it has, you know, opened my dad's eyes to it's okay not to be the man at all times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said you still need him. We still need him in the wrestling community selfishly as, as fans, as journalists, as, as all of the above. <laughs> Charlotte, I, you know, we've all been through difficult times, like we mentioned. When, when it's been tough for me in personal times, I throw myself into work. And your profession is already an outlet for so many regular people to step away from their daily life. So how, I guess, good did it feel or how important was it when you finally returned back to the road recently and, and made your first appearance again on SmackDown to sort of just throw yourself back into what you love? Okay, so with my dad being sick, that was the longest I'd ever taken off from the company since I started. When my brother Reed passed away, I was only gone for a week. It came right back. So I was off TV for a couple weeks and when I came back just to lace up my boots and walk you know do my entrance like I just I needed that like work is my happy place and where I feel good and performing is what makes me feel alive so to be back that Tuesday night and become the number one contender to know I'm facing Natty at Hell in a Cell was everything that I needed not only for me but I know that's what my dad would want as well. We know that's what you wanted, Charlotte, but I think it's what we wanted as fans as well because, <laughs> look, look, listen, the women's division is very good, but when you're there, it adds a certain gravitas. Like, the, the rent gets raised a little bit when Charlotte Flair is involved. So, obviously, it was great for you to go out there on SmackDown Live last Tuesday night, like you said, win the number one contenders match, go on to face Natalia at Hell in a Cell for the SmackDown Women's Championship. But did you get the sense that the fans kind of felt the same way that you did, the same way that I did watching at home, that Brian did watching at home, that, damn, it's great to have Charlotte Flair back. Because, quite frankly, the women's division, it's better when you're there. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, I don't, I didn't really think of those little, you know, feelings. It was more, so I'm on a new brand, and I'm very competitive, and I want SmackDown to be better than Raw. And I knew not only was I back, but it was more, okay, well, we're having a four-way. We're the main event. We're going to steal the show, and we're going to prove why we're the better division. 
And that's what was going through my mind. You know, you mentioned your competitiveness and your competitiveness, and that was sort of my natural transition question. Like, you know, as a journalist slash fan, whatever that means, when I watch SmackDown, a lot of the time I'm like, hey, WWE, put the belt back on Charlotte, right? Put her in the main event. This is, you know, like Nick said, this makes too much sense. As a competitor, when the booking isn't always going your way, how much are you getting that same itch when you know what your next month is going to look like, let's say, and you're saying to yourself, you know, Maybe it is better for business with me on top. I can only do so much as a performer, but do you get that same itch? So, yeah, the summer's been definitely a challenge, but I think a challenge in a good way because, one, I'm no longer the evil queen. I'm now a good guy. I'm on a different brand. I haven't been in a title picture the whole summer. So the way I look at it as, one, it's a challenge to be the best performer as a good guy and see what I can do on that side. And then, you know, showing different layers of my character, not being in the title picture because for two years on raw, I was so intense and in the same role as much as, I mean, everyone will know this. I want that SmackDown title. Like I want the title and I want it at all times. But as I had to keep telling myself, this was a way to grow as a talent to develop more layers, even with my on-camera relationship with my best friend, Becky Lynch. I think she brings out a softer side of my character on camera than anyone's ever seen before. So it's just a matter of adjusting, not being in the title picture, but I'm ready to be in the title picture and I'm ready to hold the title. <laughs> which, which character, and, and we are ready for that as well, Charlotte, believe me. Um, we talk about it every week on this podcast. Um, which of those personas do you gravitate towards more? And again, Charlotte Flair, the human being, which do you enjoy more being the evil queen or being sort of the good guy, as you put it, as you have been recently on SmackDown, which one does it more for you? I enjoy being the evil queen because solely because, you know, if you read second nature and you kind of see what I've been through, I spent the last few years creating this non vulnerable, non-relatable character that's untouchable. And I needed that in my personal life. So when I get to play Charlotte, it just feels so good because I wish I was more, not that I wish I was evil or condescending or anything like that, but I just wish I could ooze confidence at all times. And when I walk through that curtain, it's like a light switch. And I just, I like playing that character. And I feel like out of all the knowledge my dad has given me over the years or since I've started wrestling, not all the years, a couple years, but um, it's, I just work better that way. I, I feel like that is my comfort zone. And, you know, I have no problem committing to being a bad guy. And a lot of people like to be cheered or they like to be cool or they can't deal with not being liked. And I love committing to being something and that's being the bad guy because I don't take it personal. It's actually where I get to, you know, kind of express and turn my emotions into this kid. It's there. I just like it. And I'm bigger than everyone. So that makes it easier. (laughs) (laughs) I just had to throw that out there. Talking here, of course, to Charlotte Flair, the book, of course, second nature. I'm just saying. (laughs) It's a great great answer. I mean, come on. 
We're talking, of course, yeah. about the book, Second Nature, The Legacy of Ric Flair and the Rise of Charlotte. Charlotte, there's a gratuitous question we have to ask you. It involves Ronda Rousey. I'm sure you're getting it all day. Ronda and the WWE obviously not confirming anything, but a lot of natural tease and talk from her appearances at the Mae Young Classic, from the video that WWE released with you and her doing a, you know, you talk about Cena and Reigns being a dream match, seeing Ronda Rousey and Charlotte Flair face off gave a lot of people that dream match feeling. From your perspective, if this comes to fruition, how excited would this make you compared to other potential, you know, directions your career can go if this ends up panning out? So my goal and my dream is to be an attraction for the company as a female. And having an opportunity with someone like Ronda who opened the door for women. I think she opened the door for us on the main roster to main event shows to be given major storylines. But I think it would not only show that I could be an attraction for the company, but it also show how far my talent, you know, surpasses just, you know, working other WWE superstars that I can take another star outside and we can build this, enormous match around our personas and nothing would mean more than to have that opportunity with someone of Rhonda's caliber. Well, let's, let's ask point blank, Charlotte. You, you, I've had the pleasure of interviewing you for a couple of years now. You've always said your true goal in wrestling main event WrestleMania, right? Break that record, yes. cross that barrier, become the first, you know, be the first women's match to do that. Is Ronda Rousey the type of opponent that could get you to that point? Yes. She is. I, yes. I mean, she, you know, w look at UFC. Look what she did for UFC. And I think if the story is told right and it's built and this was something that WWE and Ronda agreed to, I think for sure it could be a main event at WrestleMania. Um, listen, I go to but WrestleMania every year. That, yeah. saying, but saying that, though, I also think the Four Horsewomen could be a main event for a fatal four way could also be a main event. Very Me versus uh, Bailey versus Sasha versus Becky. I think that could also be a main event. Well, um, I, we go to WrestleMania every year, but um, that would definitely jazz it up a little bit for us. If that were to happen, that would be absolutely sensational. Charlotte. I want to circle back to the answer that you gave sort of on how you like being the evil queen, right? And like that character, I actually got goosebumps while you were giving that answer, right? Because I always like to draw the human elements out, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, you are known worldwide and you have a certain level of celebrity, but you're a human being that has human problems like, like the rest of us, right? The moment that you had when you first realized, I can use this, this character, the evil queen, as an outlet to sort of maybe escape. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth and saying that's what you were trying to do. This was my interpretation. To maybe try and escape some of the problems that you might have been having or the negative feelings that you might have been having. When was that moment when it first really clicked for you that, wow, like, <laughs> this character and this persona, I really like it because it allows me to be someone different when I'm out there in front of the crowd? I can tell you exactly. It was TLC versus Paige. I was pretty close to home, and I was the baby face, and the building booed me out, booed me out of the arena. And I went home or I went to the hotel that night and I was crying and I couldn't stop. And I was like, why do these, why do the fans not like me? You know, even in NXT, 
uh, when I dropped the title and there was all this buzz that I wasn't pretty enough to be on the main roster, that I wasn't diva material. And all these things started adding up, you know, plus I hadn't dealt with what I had been through with my two marriages. And when I got to the hotel that night, I said, it's time to put on my big girl pants and everything that I want to be in a woman, you need to put into your character. And it's okay that people don't understand that you're Ric Flair's daughter and you didn't choose this path. It shows you. And from that moment on, I said, be what you wish you were every time you walk through that curtain. And it doesn't matter whether people are hating you or loving you, you're getting a reaction and that's what you're here to do. So it was after that pay-per-view. Charlotte, when I hear you speak, I, uh, you know, you, people probably ask you, how are you, what do you take from your dad in the ring? How are you guys alike? I hear the toughness in your voice that I hear in your dad's voice. What, what do you sort of feel like has been passed down to you as a performer from father to daughter? Um, there's a quote that my dad has said, and he goes, real men don't cry about it. And I've always, you know, yes, I get tired. Yes, I get sore. Yes. Uh, some days I just need to slow down or, you know, deal with what's going on at home. But in a lot of ways, what my dad has instilled in me is, you know, to be the hardest worker and he wanted to be the best and I want to be the best and I will go, you know, relentlessly till I am. That's what your dad gave to you on the flip side though. And, and, and I know sort of that this can be complicated, right? Because when a parent gets sick, I know that children, myself, my sister, or friends of mine, et cetera, always feel like, is there something that I could have done? Is there something extra that I could have done for my father, for my mother, et cetera? And I'm sure that you have those feelings, but I'm sure that you also know deep down that you have made an impact and you have done stuff to help your dad out. If you could pick oh, one you mean, thing what out. what could I have done for my dad? Oh, oh no, um, no, 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 not, not, not what could you have done for your dad. What do you think that you have done for your dad on the flip side? You just said what okay, he's done for the, you. What have you done so, for him? I don't, I don't know if we've asked, if me and my dad have asked, I don't think we've really touched on this because, you know, we don't, we talk about Reed, but not a lot. Um, me wrestling I think ultimately saved my dad's career and not only saved my life, but definitely put a whole nother chapter that no one saw coming because it could have been rock bottom after my brother passed away. And then that's when I decided that, you know, I showed back up at FCW, which is now now NXT a week later because Dusty Rhodes said, we want you back. We need you back. And from that day on, I just, you know, decided that I was going to make it in this industry. And I think because I worked so hard there that that gave my dad, you know, more reason to be active in the wrestling community. And I think that helped him a lot with his later on career in life after just the the ring. Uh, Charlotte, I'm finished with my questions. I just want to tell you just person to person um, how much I respect you and how difficult I think all this must be, not just as a human being, but a human being who's very much in the public eye. I think you've handled it with a lot of grace and you've given us outstanding answers. And we don't just enjoy you as a performer, but a lot of respect for you, the human being as well. And and I really appreciate it. Appreciate your candor. Oh, thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having me on.
We'll see you again on Sunday, October 8th, of course, at WWE Hell in a Cell in Detroit when you challenge SmackDown Live Women's Champion Natalia, And, of course, that book, everybody out there listening, get your hands on it. Second Nature, The Legacy of Ric Flair and the Rise of Charlotte. And, Charlotte, you said you'd hope to see a reunion of that Four Horsemen match one day. We were just we do a pay-per-view rewind on this show. We were just talking about NXT Our Revolution 2014, the first time we saw that match. And I'm getting fired up thinking about how that can look a second time. So. You got us fired up here yes, and ready. Me too. Great match, right? <laughs> Nobody you. talks about it. Great match. Come on. I was a fantastic. <laughs> great stuff. Charlotte, best of luck in the future. Thanks again for your time. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, guys. Bye. That was different than any interview that, Bri, you and I have ever conducted with any, with any professional wrestler, male or female. Um, I was really, and you kind of heard it in my voice and in the questions I was asking and what I said to her at the end, blown away. Not And look, we love Charlotte Flair, the performer, Bri. I was sort of blown away by Charlotte Flair, the human being. Life's hard, man, like when you're not in the public eye. And she's been in the public eye literally her entire life. To handle it with grace and comport herself in the manner that she has, I just think is very worthy of everyone's respect, not just from a professional level, but from a human personal level as well i mean she's dealt with a lot and for her to be that open with us right and talk about the the two divorces in her past the loss of her brother which would have wrecked a lot of people's lives for her it it inspired her to start her wrestling career and then when she gives that kicker at the end which was a great question by you essentially of you know you've learned a lot from your father what has he learned from you to her for her to kind of put into words and spell out even at this age you know to have that kind of wisdom and say me taking on wrestling and following a path that I didn't choose, that it chose me, it may have saved my father, right? It may have been at a point where he needed that so much. And certainly it was her finding out who she was supposed to be as a, as a person, as an entertainer. And she's never looking back. She's on, on, you know, maybe on her way to be the greatest female of all time. Her dad's already the greatest male wrestler of all time. It's incredible lineage there. But one more point, Nick, is Ronda Rousey. We got her to comment on it. It seems inevitable. Guys, is this right? Could that be the first female main event in WrestleMania history? She tends to think so. I think Rousey needs to be in WWE for a bit. So you're talking a year, two years, whether it's a Brock Lesnar schedule or not. Um, But she needs to be there for a little while for that to happen. I don't think a one-off Charlotte, uh, Ronda Rousey, whether it's for the title or not, would be a main event of WrestleMania. However, if you're a- if you're asking me, do I see that Ronda Rousey and Charlotte Flair could main event WrestleMania 35 in two years? I could definitely see that if they get her in this year and give her 18 months of pure work with the top women in the company. Absolutely. Silver King, what were your impressions of the interview overall? I, I just think it's um, it was a really unique timing. Uh, you know, for obviously they're promoting the book and everything that's happening with Ric Flair now and his health. It's just it was a, a rare confluence of events that we get her at this particular time in her life. And, and WWE gave us the time that we did. You know, she's making media rounds, but she's doing scrums. She's doing five minute interviews here and there. We got her for 20 minutes opening up about her entire life and career. I thought she was extremely candid. And it just like I said, it, it was really touching uh, the things that she said and knowing people that go through things like she has. Nick, you're one of them, obviously, a few years ago. Um 
it was just great. And I thought you guys did a fantastic job with it. So thanks for Charlotte for being on and thanks for WWE uh, to WWE for making her available to us. And again, if you're not, if you don't feel empathy for, for the young woman in this spot, I mean, check your pulse. You know, you might not be a human being. This is the human condition at its finest. We all go through tough times in life. We can all empathize with people that have, whether they are in the public eye or not. So awesome stuff from Charlotte Flair and Brian. Awesome stuff from her father, the nature boy, Ric Flair, and Bobby the Brain Heenan in this week's edition of Pay-Per-View Rewind. Oh, yeah, yeah, the abridged version right there accidentally, but it takes you right into the riff. <laughs> I was waiting for the rest of it. Okay, so let's you know, get right Well, let me, let me just hit you up with this right off the top because this is what Vince hit us up with right off the top, and if you don't get fired up hearing this... Holy yes, yes. crap. It's time to rumble. It's time <laughs> for the Royal Rumble. Ah. Suck that Vince never lost his voice because I've done, I actually do a pretty good Vince McMahon impersonation in all seriousness. I'm not going to do it because when I do it, like my, my voice actually hurts for an entire day and I got a long day of talking ahead of me today. So I'm not going to do it, but I'm shocked that Vince can speak. Um, and I, what a shot of nostalgia that is, right? But does he that sit on like a, a chair full of needles to get that to get that voice to come out of him? I mean, is there just like like <laughs> loaded needles of Ico Pro underneath his seat, and he just sits down and that's like ah. But the best one, the best one that he would say, word that he would say in that voice was warrior, because the ultimate warrior is just just tremendous. Like WrestleMania six, title versus title, Hogan versus warrior, like. That I, I mean, like watching stuff like this, like really like brings, brings a smile to my face. And I'm literally watching this match last night. I've seen it a hundred times and I'm thinking as I'm watching it. Oh, my God. I love this stuff. I love this stuff so freaking much. And I've loved it my entire life. And this was just like it's like your childhood, like in one hour long match. Like, it was fantastic. So I chose it, guys. You know why? Because unfortunately, Bobby the Brain Heenan passed away last week. Rest in peace to the brain, the greatest of all time. So I thought that. This was a good forum for us to celebrate Bobby Heenan and to celebrate what is, in my opinion, no doubt, the greatest Royal Rumble of all time. So I will give my takes on the match last. I will let you guys go first. The man whose name is on the marquee, Brian Campbell, leads us off. Certainly, you know, this has been called the greatest Rumble of all time. It makes a lot of sense when you look at not just the star power, not just the the timing of when old school versus new school meets together, the timing of Flair in that short window he was in WWF. So you, you have Hogan, Flair, you know, Prime Sid, Undertaker, Shawn Michaels. You have everyone from multiple kind of generate Roddy Piper coming together at one time. That's great. But the reason why this becomes so great and it, it sort of – inspires everything we're going to talk about about why this is good is because you had the WWF championship at stake. It really raised the stakes of this and what was happening here inside the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany, New York, of all grand places to hold the event. It still showed you that WWE during a time of the business still trying to regain their 80s prime, still doing the uh, the local New, you know, New England, New York uh, circuits whenever they can because that's where the money is. But it 
the Heenan stuff is what makes this match, but it's so informed by how important the match is, what it means to Ric Flair, what it means to everyone involved to get a chance at that title. Heenan has like multiple near heart attacks, talks about how he needs stiff drinks, talks about how he's sweating. I could play you 79 sound bites from Heenan. I have a few captured, but I literally could play you so many because not only is this the perfect showcase of how good him and Gorilla were together. They're doing like Abbott and Costello type, like Laurel and Hardy, like playoff off of together. And they have such history, right? And needling each other and ripping each other. But you have Heenan selling every 30 seconds how the odds are stacked against Flair coming out at three and how Hogan who comes... Not fair to Flair, Brian. Not fair to Flair. And how Hogan coming out later has an extra advantage and just... Bobby just sweating and and aching over every second. Every time somebody punches Flair in the face, he gets angry. It's a tour de force, but it's fueled by the fact that this match meant more because the title was at stake. And when they reveal that Flair comes out at number three, let's hear this audio because, you know, Heenan goes nuts and then Gorilla just has so much fun, you know, just needling him around the whole time. It's great. That clinched it. Thanks, everybody, for waiting through that. That clinched it. That sit down before you have a heart attack. It's like Gorilla was like so perfectly in character. Like, you a-hole. You you were talking so much like Flair's going to win this. Now he has no chance. So let's just sit down and compose yourself, basically. Guys, like, that was the theme. That was the narrative. And they beat that in your brain to perfection. That no one had ever gone the distance, right? It was a couple years before Shawn Michaels did. That Flair had no chance at number three to win this. So BC really laid that out nice. I mean, I, I don't want to add too much to that. I want to give some historical context here so everyone understands that to watch this match, kind of where it where it transpired in WWE history and lore. So 91-92, there was uh, Ric Flair was intervening in these Undertaker Hulk Hogan championship matches. He cost one the title. He tried to help, but he cost Hogan the title. Undertaker won it. He tried to cost Hogan from you know winning it back. A question quickly here, guys. Trivia question. Do you guys remember the event at which Undertaker beat Hulk Hogan for the championship? Survivor Series 91. No. I, is that, it might be, but which one was Tuesday? One of those was the Tuesday that, special so, paper. So, yeah, I wasn't, I, wasn't being, I wasn't being specific. So, Undertaker wins the title at Survivor Series 91 thanks to help from Ric Flair. Then, like, Tuesday night in Texas, which was the next, I don't know what it was. It was a pay-per-view TV event, something. A one-off thing that they tried to, on a Tuesday yeah. night in Texas, as the yeah. title will tell you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's a rematch because you know Hogan got screwed basically, and I'm not going to go into it, Nick. You can if you want to go into it, but uh, Ric Flair prevents Hogan from winning the title back. Basically, the dust into the Undertaker's eyes from the right. urn. Hogan, from the urn, and then Jack Tunney holds the title up. Exactly. So then Tunney decides Jack Tunney, the president of WWE, when they had a on-screen president at the time, and he was a great one, by the way. He decides, ah, we're just going to vacate this title, even though 
The Undertaker won it fair and square, not fair and square, but he won it. We're going to vacate this title, put it up at the Royal Rumble. And then what you have in the Rumble is the Undertaker making a huge presence in the match. You have Hulk Hogan coming in late and the Undertaker and Hogan were both guaranteed entrance between 20 and 30 because they were the last two people that held the title. Then you have Ric Flair, the heel, starting at three, an impossible task, and going through and ultimately winning it, of course. There's a couple things I want to make points on from this match before Nick gives all his stuff. We saw Flair and the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, in the ring together, going head-to-head, and I bet you that if you said to Ric Flair, hey, this kid in 20 years is going to retire you at WrestleMania, he would call you a liar, and he he wouldn't believe it. Um, Flair said in his first book, he didn't know he was going to win the Rumble, which means winning the title, until the day of the show. I thought that was interesting. The British Bulldog, he's obviously in so many Royal Rumbles. He seems like he has the record for most time in a Royal Rumble without winning. Like, if you compiled it for the 10 or 20 or however many Royal Rumbles he was in, he's always there for like 20 guys, like 30 minutes, and never, ever wins. Savage, Randy Savage, hates Jake the Snake so much that he basically tries to eliminate himself so he can continue (laughs) fighting him during the match. And obviously they didn't let that happen because someone else has to eliminate you, go over the top rope. And the last thing, I really liked the title presentation at the end. They didn't give him the title in the ring. Flair ran out of the ring. Uh, Hogan and Sid kind of went head to head a little bit for eliminating him, each other. And then in the back, Jack Tunney presented Ric Flair with the title. And Ric Flair delivered an incredible promo. It's fantastic. Nick, what a great choice of a pay-per-view rewind. All right. So thank you very much. Um, Silver King, you made a great point. I I took a bunch of notes as I was watching this match. One of them was, and you nailed it. How cool was it to see a young Shawn Michaels in the ring with Ric Flair in 1992, 20 plus years before he would retire him at WrestleMania? I'm glad that that I I know Brian did because he texted me about it. I'm glad that you picked up on it as well. Hope that the listeners did as well to anyone that that watched it, because that was a a pretty cool. And the crescent kick, Nick. No, no chin music yet. It's a crescent kick. (laughs) in music a crescent kick that was pretty funny now literally everyone and their mother does the super kick and an homage to Shawn michaels now bry i know you've got a couple heenan jokes i want you to play them here the one that cracked me up i've got a couple here and i don't know if any of them are going to repeat because we didn't talk about it the first one before the royal rumble starts he goes jack tawny great president and he goes not as good as nori Yeager or something like that <laughs> like, what an unbelievable line by heenan another good one he goes he calls things that you could say in 1992 that you couldn't get away with in 2000 2017 calls Tito Santana El Matador the flying jalapeno. I'm not sure that that would go over well now. He says many times, I don't think I can be objective, where Heenan's almost breaking character a little bit within his own character while staying in character, if that makes sense. Like, he's never been objective, and he's saying, I don't think I can be objective. No, you don't say, Brain, because you've given us an entire career of not being objective. He goes about the barbarian. The Barbarian didn't like me even when I was managing for him. Why do you think they call him the Barbarian? He's not a hairdresser on his days off. <laughs> there were just so many great one-liners here. The, the skirt kilt stuff with Roddy Piper oh, yeah. saying, saying, like, I will never do this again if this happens. Then it happens, and he goes back to doing it again. Like, he was he was such a master on the microphone. He was so great during this match, Bri. What kind of sound you got for okay, us for Bobby? The- it could have been 50 of them. I mean, when he had when Tito was beating up Flair in the corner, he goes, oh, look at Santana. He's making guacamole all over him. I mean, that's great. But Nikolai Volkov comes out. Bobby's already in the middle of a rant about how he Flair's going to lose. Flair, don't, no, no, Flair, don't punch. And he goes, oh, look at this giant Lithuanian coming out here. And then Gorilla signals this. Oh, things are pretty rough right now over there for those Russians. Too bad. What a feather in the... 
I mean, just so so slyly, you know, too bad. Who cares? I got bigger things. I got Flair to worry about. And then Virgil comes out. And Bobby's jabbing him the whole time as he's running to the ring. And then he hits it pretty much with this right here. He just came out, right? Yes. Number 23, right? Who knows how many bags he's going through in the back when you stop. You know, you get the classic, will you stop? I mean, insinuating that Virgil's just going through everybody's stuff in the locker room is just absolutely hilarious. couple quick run-throughs here, Nick, before I let you take this home. Haku's pants are incredible. He's such an underrated worker. There's so many colors going on there. I always resented the Kerry Von Erich tornado gimmick because anybody that grew up watching him in world class, he was a star really almost on a Hogan Flair level. I know that's a regional promotion that went national because of their elevated TV production. But to see Kerry Von Erich just doing discus punch after discus punch so he can live up to the tornado gimmick with the straws on his boots flying around in a circle. This was his last WWE pay-per-view. His life sadly ended right a year later when he took his own life. If you knew how over... How, how great he used to look, how much, uh, you know, he's a, always a good worker, but just how over he was. To see him do this is, it was a dampening. And I know to a lot of people that's the only Kerry Von Eric they know, and he's okay, right? He had the icy belt. But to know what he was and to know what happened after this, it was a sad moment to see. And Hercules, man, this bloated version of Hercules that has long hair and he's bald, he's so washed. I'm surprised Vince ever even let him in the ring in the post-steroid you know, era at this point. But the exaggerated flare... Bump, Nick, is the only thing I didn't like. We love that Flair face-forward bump. He did it yeah, about like- 37 times. And the only other part of the match that wasn't good was, man, Piper no-sold the crap out of Flair. Like, Piper's old school. He had problems putting Mr. T over. He had problems letting any outsider in. Well, did he consider Flair an outsider at this point? Because he no-sold everything Flair did against him. Well, I think that was almost, you're not wrong, but I think that was almost part of the charm of the match was Flair was the ultimate underdog in this match, and he ends up he ends up winning at the end. So I got a bunch of different things that I want to hit. Number one, for the nostalgic wrestling fan in me, I'm sure for you guys as well, the Royal Rumble starting with the British Bulldog and the Million Dollar Man was pretty damn cool. And then you've got Michaels and the Bulldog in the ring together for quite some time. Now, remember, two years later in 1994, Shawn Michaels, would win the Royal, excuse me, 1995 this happened. Michaels won the Royal Rumble. Michaels was one, Bulldog was two, and they were the two final people left at the end of the Royal Rumble before Michaels eliminated the Bulldog. So I thought that was pretty funny, a funny recall there. You played it, the freak out when Flair came out at three was absolutely tremendous. Just there was so much star power in in the ring at the same time. The final four, Nick. The final four was insane. Even before we got to the final four, like there was a portion of this match where you had The Undertaker, Jake the Snake Roberts, the Macho Man Randy Savage, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the Nature Boy Ric Flair, all in the same ring together. And this is before we get to the final four and you add Hogan and you add Sid Justice. And a couple funny things just from it being 1992. One of the biggest pops in the entire match went to Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Hacksaw comes out, and a hometown guy, obviously, from Niagara Falls in upstate New York. The crowd goes nuts for Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I love heel Jake the Snake Roberts. Like, you didn't get heel Jake for too long in the Trust Me gimmick. He was awesome, and his feud with Macho Man was awesome. We should do something with that at some point there, with the snake biting Macho Man and the whole deal with Elizabeth. That was pretty cool. How about a young Undertaker coming out and just looking so damn cool? And I remember thinking back, nine years old, eight years old, and thinking... This guy's got, like, he's unbelievable. Like, you're, you can't take your eyes off of a young Mark Calloway. He obviously goes on to be one of the biggest stars in the history of professional wrestling. How funny is the berserker? Like, this is, like, stuff that would not happen today, where it's a guy who comes out going, huss, huss. Like, that's his I mean, gimmick. Sazawa? 
Akira Tozawa? Yeah, I guess so. And, and by the can... way, Duggan from Glens Falls, New York, on Lake George. There's going to be New York people that are going to be all over you for the Niagara Falls comment. Yeah, well, let me tell you something. I'm from Queens, and that's real New York. Anywhere else is not actually New York, so you guys can stick it where the sun doesn't shine from handsome Nick Costos. In 1992, guys, Rick the Model Martel held the record at that point for longest time in one Royal Rumble match. How hysterical is that? This was like the fifth or sixth Rumble. Rick Martel held the record, which was broken by Ric Flair. I think Rey Mysterio holds it now, but I'm not 100% sure. After Hogan comes in, Keenan starts off with the, I'm sorry for everything that I've done. Please just let Flair get past this and I will I will change. I will be a different man. Hogan eliminating The Undertaker. Like something that you watch then and it's like, wow, like they sort of hotshotted that. And I feel like this was all building towards Hogan being the star. And I will get to this here and why this is so important from a historical perspective. So the final four, Hogan. Savage, Sid, and Flair. So first, Savage goes out, and you've got Flair, Sid, and Hogan. Now, Sid at this point is the star that Vince is starting to push. Hogan is obviously the longtime face of the company. Flair is the outsider. I remember watching this and being shocked when Sid eliminated Hulk Hogan. And when that happens, what did the crowd do? The crowd popped. The crowd went nuts for Sid. And then you had Hulk Hogan. And this was the moment, guys, this moment here where Hulkamania started to die. The original incarnation of Hulkamania. This is a seminal moment in the history of professional wrestling where Hulk Hogan, after being eliminated, Hulk Hogan, who handed the WWF title to Ultimate Warrior at the end of WrestleMania 6, Hogan, the take your vitamins and say your prayers, Hulkamaniac version of Hulk Hogan, decided not to walk to the back with his head held high but grabbed Sid after he was eliminated fair and square, allowing Ric Flair to dump Sid over the top rope and win the WWF championship. Now, Silver King, you said you liked the presentation afterwards, and we'll hear that full interview, which is which was awesome. I don't think they did that on purpose. I think that even though Flair won, and you can tell because WrestleMania 8, a couple months later, the main event was not Flair versus Savage for the belt. The main event was Hogan against Sid. Because Vince still felt like Hogan was his guy. And even though Savage or Flair had won, Hogan was the guy in the ring at the end. But you guys listen, and I know you did. After Hogan and Sid get in to do their stare down, who was the crowd on the side of? They were on the side of Sid. They booed Hulk Hogan. And from that point forward, Hogan never got the same level of cheers. At WrestleMania 9, when he went over Yokozuna, it was a total disaster after Yokozuna beat Brett. And that was the end of Hulk Hogan's tenure in WWF Part 1 before he went to WCW. So that was a major moment. The crowd chanting, Sid, 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 Sid. And still Vince stubbornly tried to push Hulk Hogan like he was the biggest star in the company. When, in fact, he should have pushed Ric Flair as the biggest star in the company. A major opportunity lost. And, Brian, that brings us to the epic post-match promo right before i hit that there was a moment where flair and hogan had a couple mini face-offs in there and i popped big because they ruined that season that they had to do hogan and flair at a wrestlemania or at a major main event because if you grew up in the 80s you debated every single day with your friends when you got your magazines and you saw the rankings what would happen if hogan and flair fought and i know they did a house show tour as soon as flair got to wwe and you know the the you, you Read back the Meltzer stories. It was that it didn't sell what Vince wanted to, so we didn't go forward with that. Looking back, it's still a massive fail that we never saw that. This may have been the high-water moment 
of that brief WWE window for Flair when they could have done it. Seeing Prime Hogan, Prime Flair, right? You know, a little past their prime against each other. It was a big moment. But Flair wins, and then you have this epic end to it, which you'll hear Sid say something hilarious at the start of it. Right now, we understand we've got it going on. Let's go to Beijing. Kill you. <laughs> By virtue of winning the Royal Rumble, we have a brand new World Wrestling Federation champion as the press watches on at this time to present the title belt to the new champion, our president, the distinguished Jack Tunney. Congratulations, Ric Flair, on becoming the undisputed champion of the World Wrestling Federation. Let me just say, after view distorting the belt, they're proclaiming the real world champion. I'm going to tell you all. With a tear in my eye, this is the greatest moment in my life. When you walk around this world and you tell everybody you're number one, the only way you get to stay number one is to be number one. And this is the only title in the wrestling world that makes you number one when you are the king of the WWF. You rule the world. Think about it like that, Mr. Perfect. Guys, the Woo! I mean, that's brilliant, and you have one more piece of brilliance from Mean Gene afterwards. Okay, very good. Rick Flair, you have made world. Put that cigarette out. You have made- oh, yeah, that's great. That, who could forget that moment? Do you, do you have the rest of it or no? No. Uh, it needs to be said because Heenan and Perfect have a great interaction there where Heenan goes off about how Flair is the real world champion and Perfect goes, you know, Brain, we're not the type of guys to say we told you so, but we told you so. And then Flair ends it. And I'm going to do it by heart because I know it by heart at the end when Flair goes, this is the greatest moment of my life. And he switches on a dime from being happy to being furious. And he goes, and I'll say this to the Hogans and the Macho Mans and the Pipers and the Sins. Now it's Ric Flair, and y'all pay homage to the man. Woo! Oh, my God. Like, if you're a wrestling fan and you don't get goosebumps from the nature boy Ric Flair, like, go find something else to do. Like, like go play tiddlywinks or something or watch some crappy sitcom because that is as good as it gets. Wow, that's when pro wrestling sports entertainment becomes art. And hearing Nick get all fired up, hearing the insides of Nick make noises like this. Ah! Just has me all fired up. You know, that's how I get down. So um, I give it five stars. I know our guy Dave Meltzer from The Observer gave it 3.75. Historically, it's the best rumble ever. It features a seminal moment where Hulkamania, in my opinion, the beginning of the end for Hulkamania, and some of the greatest microphone work ever by Bobby the Brain Heenan and later on Ric Flair. For me, this is a five-star event, the Royal Rumble 92. I'll give it four and a quarter. The storytelling was phenomenal. The small performances, right, from Heenan and and Gorilla and beyond, great stuff across the board. The star power set the stage for more stories to come, and that's when a Royal Rumble is doing its job, four and a quarter stars. You know, it just depends how you're judging it. If you're going to judge it as a Royal Rumble, it's a five-star Royal Rumble. Let's not even split hairs on that. But as a pure wrestling match, I mean, it's different. It, it doesn't live up to that. So it's a four-star match overall. But, man, I mean, huh, I could watch that once a year easily. I think I have watched it at least once a year since 1992. So, Silver King, you are next up. You will make the choice for next week's pay-per-view rewind. Take it away. So, guys, we have Helena Cell coming up. Not this Sunday, but next Sunday on the WWE Network. And I love Hell in a Cell matches. So what we're going to do is we are going to watch the first 
ever. Hell in a Cell at In Your House Bad, that's with two Ds, Bad Blood 1997, Shawn Michaels against The Undertaker. This was a Hell in a Cell match to determine the number one contender for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship. And I'm not going to go into too many details about the match and the card and everything because I really want us to all watch it together. But let me say this. You can fast forward the entire card heading into this match because it is laughable. There have been 37 Hell in a Cell matches, guys, and this one has an argument for number one of all time. I'm going to be curious to see where you rate it after you watch it again this week. Oh, wait. Uh, so hold on real quick. Silver King, can I give a little... Do you want to give no historical background here, or can I give a little historical background here? I mean, you can give a little bit. Just don't... I don't want to give anything away, you know, well, for... Think- the ending is great. I'll just say that. The match is outstanding. I'll say that. And also, I think this does need to be said because this isn't spoiling anything. Sure. This obviously led – well, it kind of spoils the winner. Do we, Can I give away the winner? Do we care or no? No, don't give away the winner. No. There's probably a lot of fans that have just started watching in the 2000s, maybe even 2010. And if they haven't seen this match, they need to see it blind going in, in my opinion. And it leads into one of the most staggering moments in the history of professional wrestling, Brian. So, I, I, Silver King, this is a – a five-star pick by you. Excellent. Oh, no doubt. I mean, this is this is the era I love when you bring me back into. So let's let's unwrap that piece by piece next week. And to the listeners out there, send in your choices because the week after, you know, it's viewers' choice. So hit them up on them DMs at B Campbell CBS at the Costos at Silverstein Adam. We forfeit the DM segment this week because of our interview with Charlotte. But Nick, it's time to put our hands right in the middle of that feel spot and feel around and get excited for me this week. Nicholas Costos, I take you back to NXT last week's episode. We record on Wednesdays. I watched last week's. There was a moment that gave me the moment, the, the moment, right? The moment that made the moment. Alistair Black in the ring, really his first moment in a suit to deliver a promo to sort of have his, his you know, his close-up. He's had a really strong run. He's been pushed strong. This was his close-up moment. And the Velveteen Dream, Patrick Clark, a.k.a. doing the Prince gimmick, makes his run-in. And it gets weird, and it gets awesome. Velveteen kind of looking him up and down, ripping him on the mic, and Aleister Black does his black mass spinning kick but instead kicks the microphone out of Velveteen's hands and then just sits down in the middle of the ring in that sort of creepy satanic stare that he does. But Dream doesn't back off. He gets on his hands and knees and in an almost gold dust sort of man creepiness style, crawls right up into Black's face like he might kiss him. Black doesn't flinch and then Dream backpedals in a really creepy manner and stares at him from outside the ring. You didn't know at first if the dream looked in the eyes and saw the devil and got scared or if he was playing mind games. In the end, I think he was playing mind games, basically saying, I'm not afraid of you. You know, I got my own demons going on here. We're going to match them together. I believe in myself. And guys, this match, this feud could be special because of what these guys can do in the ring and how different their characters are fired up right now. So I have a different feel spot this week, but I'd be lying if I said when I saw a rundown for this show that I saw what Brian wrote and I didn't utter a curse word because this is exactly what I wanted to hit. Patrick Clark and more importantly, the Velvet Velveteen Dream, they're incredible. This is a character that you would say, just like Goldust back in the day, you would say, this isn't going to work. Like, what are they doing with this guy? This guy is so talented. No, it works. And this, you know, rivalry or whatever they're starting, this feud with Aleister Black, 
it works because they are so drastically different as performers, both in the ring and out of the ring. Man, I'm excited for that. My feel spot this week, you know, it was tough to come up with one, honestly, because this was not a great week at WWE TV. But hearing The Undertaker's theme music Tuesday night on SmackDown and knowing exactly what was happening with Dolph Ziggler continuing his entrance gimmick, it really worked for me because as much as you want to criticize him for what he's for and, and the booking for what they've done the first two weeks or first three weeks with this no respect gimmick coming out as the Undertaker and fooling a couple fans and taking it all the way into the ring with the reveal of the hat and everything. It was great. Dolph Ziggler did a great job and it really set up a nice moment with Bobby Roode for this feud that obviously Dolph Ziggler is going to lose at Hell in a Cell. I, I think that I might be the only person again. I said this last week in the minority of people that enjoy the Jinder Mahal promos with the Shinsuke Nakamura pictures on the old Titan Tron. I'll just reiterate, I laugh my ass off when the Singh brothers are laughing their asses off when the pictures come up. And here's what's important. It's the same promo they did last week, minus the racial slurs, thankfully, and Jinder even referenced that in his promo. But if you notice, they choose to have the camera not go to what's on the Titan Tron first, but they keep the camera on the ring. So you can see the Singh brothers react before they show you what they're reacting to. And what that tells me is that Vince McMahon probably finds it to be just as funny as I do. I imagine Vince McMahon slapping his knee, roaring in laughter, watching the Singh brothers fall to the mat and and pantomiming Shinsuke Nakamura's uh, hand motion, which I'm doing, which you can't see on Skype audio medium, but very funny. So Samir and Sunil, the Singh brothers, do it for me each and every week. They make me laugh hysterically. I think they add a lot to the proceedings, and I will add, I do think that Jinder Mahal is starting to come into his own on the microphone a little bit where you could tell early on that he had no business being in the ring for 10 minutes or so. Now, listen, did I say that Ginger Mahal was Ric Flair? I did not say that, right? Did I say he was the rock on the microphone? I did. But what he can do now is go out and confidently give you 10 minutes on the microphone. That doesn't mean he's Dwayne Johnson. It doesn't mean he's Ric Flair. But he's a lot better now than he was three, four months ago. And I think that that's important. To say the Singh Brothers and Jinder Mahal, that promo hit me in the old deal spot this week. And that does it for this week's edition of In This Corner, the professional wrestling edition. So for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, I am Handsome Nick Costos, Brian Campbell. Two words to end things. Yeah! Fire! And we out.